We are in a series called Uniquely Luke, and each message is either a story that is only in Luke's gospel, not in any of the other gospels, or a parable that's only in Luke's gospel. And so we are in Luke 2 right now, and here we go, verse 41. Now his parents, Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, would you take your word and would you open our hearts, open our lives and speak into it? Let your light rush into our darkness. Readjust us to heaven and heaven's agenda, and heaven's truth. Hide me behind the cross, I pray, God. We love you, we praise you, Holy Spirit. We welcome you now. Fill this place with the truth of heaven, we pray. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. amen. You may be seated. So the title of the message is The Father's House. A few weeks ago, I talked about Luke wrote from eyewitnesses, and in this situation, most scholars believe that he, he personally interviewed Mary, that Mary is the one that tells these stories. This is the only story of Jesus' childhood that's in the Bible. We've got one in Matthew's gospel when he's a toddler and the wise men come to the house, but this is the only childhood story. And the, the, the idea that Mary gave this to him personally, I think is indicated by Mary treasured these things up into her heart. When the shepherds came, this is 2.19, it says Mary pondered these things and treasured them in her heart. She is telling Luke what it was like, what the experiences was, and there's this one memorable incident when Jesus was 12. So these are the first recorded words of Jesus. And here's what they are. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know? I must be in my father's house. <laughs> what he's saying is, is you shouldn't have been looking everywhere. Of course, I'm at home. <laughs> when, you're, when somebody's lost, the first place you check is home. Jesus is like, I was at home. Where else would I be? My home is the father's house. So point one this morning is called losing Jesus. So many years ago, when we were young parents, we had Matt at that time, and my brother Mike had his son, John, that are, are about the same age, and 
John at this time was one and a half. He could walk, but he couldn't speak. Well, we had these huge flared reunions where we would get several different cabins and and the, and the campfire, the night campfire, and the music, and the singing, and all of that would always be around the big cabin. And so Mike's wife, Diane, who's just this unbelievably responsible mom, somehow let Mike take John without her to this reunion. Um, I can't imagine why she wouldn't want to be at the Flaherty reunion. But anyway, um, <laughs> so Mike is kind of this carefree, happy-go-lucky guy, and we're all trusting Diane's judgment to let him have this one-and-a-half-year-old at the reunion that he's in charge of. And so we're all at the campfire, and we're like, Mike, where, where's John? John's sleeping in the cabin. Well, their cabin is about a block away. Mike, is that a, is that a good idea? He'll be fine. He'll be, he'll be fine. So we're hours into the night, and Mike's like, you know what, I really should check. Now, you got to understand, you got to understand, Mike. If Mike wrote a book on children, it would be letting children raise themselves. I mean, he's, he's very hands-off, free-range children, you know, just, um, it's very hands-off. So Mike's like, I'm going to go check on John. So Mike comes back to the fire with terror in his eyes. And he's like, John is gone. What do you mean he's gone? He's not in his bed. He's not, or in the playpen. He's gone. There are woods all around. We are, are you kidding me? So we're out, we're going out in every direction. John, John, John. We're looking for this poor little one and a half year old boy that's wandering around the woods. And all of a sudden we get this, this call we found him. John had gotten out of the playpen, walked outside, and then crawled into his stroller and fell back asleep at the front door. <laughs> Mary and Joseph were in great distress looking for him. Believe me, there was great distress. Somebody was gone, and we didn't know where they were, and uh, that story is part of the family lore. All right. Losing Jesus. So, how do you lose Jesus? So, he's 12 years old. Now, they become, in, in, in Judaism at that time, when you're 13, you have your bar mitzvah and you become officially a man. And so, 12, you're, you're, right, you're right on the border. And so, it is just understandable. Oftentimes they would, they would travel in big packs for safety and the men would go up front and the women and the children would come behind. And so, so Mary is like just presuming that she, he must be with Joseph. He's almost a man. This is part of manhood, being up with the men. And, and of course, Joseph is presuming, well, he's not quite a man, so he's probably back with the Mary and, and the children. So they both presume that they're with the other, and they go a day's journey, which is about 20 miles. And they start looking, and they, and they, they have lost Jesus. Now, did you know that you can have a relationship with somebody, but no longer be present with them? So they still have a relationship, but, but they're no longer present with him. Now, 
They might not understand Jesus. Oftentimes he said stuff and they're like, we don't even know what he's talking about. They might not know how to parent him. Like, what are we supposed to do? Here's what they know for sure. They are supposed to keep track of him. <laughs> they, they know this is like the, the lowest bar. We need to at least know where he is. And so this is the most important thing in their life is to find Jesus, find out where he is, find out where they left him at this time. The, the feast of Passover is, it's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It lasts for seven days. Joseph has been away from work for 10 days. He has had no income for 10 days. You can imagine that he's anxious to get back and get back to work. And, but guys, if Jesus is missing, this is now the most important thing. This is before you do anything else, before, and you go yourself. You don't send somebody with Mary. You don't send a container. No, you, you go and you search and they go back 20 miles and search for three days because finding Jesus is the most important thing in their life at that time. So that brings us to losing Jesus today. It's called the problem of presumption. Where you presume that something's true about your relationship with God that is no longer true. The church of Sardis, Jesus comes to them. This is Revelation 3, 1 and through 3. And he says, you guys have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. He says, I know I know your deeds. I know you. I know not just what you look like. I not know not just what you did, but I know how you're doing what you did, you're doing. And the life that you used to have is gone. You are now dead and you need to wake up. You need to wake up to this relationship or I'm going to end up coming like a thief and you're going to have all kinds of regret. It's time to wake up. You can be lulled into presumption. So in 2009, the fall of 2009, I had a very powerful dream. It was very alarming to me. The, the, the dream was about someone that was too tired. They didn't value God's presence enough to fight for it. They had become exhausted and tired. And so it was about God letting people live their lives without his presence. God letting Christians live without his presence and them not fighting for his presence. Have a relationship, but content with that without having the actual presence of God. It was very, very strong dream. I had no idea what it meant, except that or I didn't know who it applied to. And so I, I came, I was at Mad City Church at the time, pastoring, and so the whole staff, you know, this is what I had, the dream I had, I think it might be us, da-da-da, we need to get God's presence back. And then I started thinking, maybe it's the nation, maybe this is the national church, and um, this is about people doing church without God's presence and being religious, without, without being godly, whatever. Um, I didn't know for sure, but I, I started studying just even this thought of, the value of God's presence and God letting people go without his presence if they're not willing to fight for it. And I found all of these scriptures, like 
like Moses. God says, I will go before you. I'm going to send an angel. You're going to have all the blessings, but I myself am not going. And Moses has to fight for his presence. He says, I'm not going if you don't go. There's nothing else except your presence that sets us apart from all the other nations on the earth. Moses has to fight for the, the real presence of God. And then David, David in his inaugural speech, when, he's, when he comes to Jerusalem to rule both Israel and Judah together, he, he says, we're going to seek after the ark because we did not seek it in the days of Saul. Saul was the previous king. He'd been king for 40 years. And you go back to Saul's reign and you're going to find something. God never told them to bring the ark back. He never said, you need to seek the ark. You need to get the, you, David had to fight for it. David had to say, this is, this is who I am. This is what we're going for. We're bringing the ark back. God, his, his presence, his manifest presence is too valuable for him to command it. You have to want it. Then we see it in the church at Laodicea. They have learned how to do church without God's presence. They have said in their heart, we need nothing. We've got our doctrines. We've got our church. We've got our, our, our thing. And we don't need it. And Jesus says, you guys don't even see it. You, you, you guys are naked, wretched, poor, blind. I, you're, you've learned how to do this without me. I'm on the outside knocking. Uh, let me in. Let me in. And once again, not commanding, but inviting. You're inviting, inviting the church to value the presence of God. Well, I couldn't get this dream out of my mind. So I took my whole family down to Kansas City to the One Thing Conference at the end of December. For four nights, we're in God's presence worshiping. Four, four nights in a row, six to midnight, January 1st, 2010. I wake up and I know what the dream means has nothing to do with our church. It has nothing to do with America. It's about me. Stunned me. I presume, I, if anybody had a reputation of being alive, it was me. I was the revival guy. I was the Holy Spirit guy. I was the, you know, I was, and I was still preaching the same stuff. But, but I had become exhausted. My, my, in, in just a, very brief time, my son had walked away from the faith and we had this unsold house, so we had financial troubles and our church was in crisis and I kind of gave into a spirit of fear and was trying to keep people and get new people and it was just a, the wrong spirit and I was absolutely exhausted and I saw it and I, 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 I repented in that hotel lobby in Kansas City. I mean, I really repented. I said, God, <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is who I am. Please forgive me. And then don't take this the wrong way, but I'm like, I don't even care about the church. <laughs> I mean, I, I care about his church, but I'm like, if our church folds, I, I must have your presence. I, I must... I must please you. If everybody else doesn't like me, I'm okay, but I, I can't ever do this again. Please save me from myself. Save me from presumption where I'm doing ministry without the presence of God. God, I never want to be there again, ever. I don't want to do the Christian life without your presence. You are my main event. <laughs> please, God. Please, God. And here's the thing. I'm still on that journey right now. <laughs> I never want to do this without his presence. I, ne I never want to do it apart from him. So that was point one, losing Jesus. Point two is life in the father's house. Listen to this. 
So, so they, get to, they get to the temple and he, they find Jesus. And here's verses 46 and 47. It says, Jesus is sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. The first thing that happens when you come to the father's house is he listens to you. Our sign says, come as you are. This is how Jesus is. He wants you to share your complaint, your confusion, your brokenness. He listens to you. There's no one that sees you more clearly than Jesus. And he wants to hear you say it in your own words. We get to come just as we are. He comes first to listen. Asaph, David's worship leader in Psalm 73, he's just angry. He's so frustrated with God, frustrated that the, pro- the wicked are prospering. That I'm having a hard time every day. I'm always under your discipline. The wicked are doing whatever they want to. And, and he's mad and he's confused. And, and then in verse 16, it says, he says, and then I came into the sanctuary. I came into the father's house. And then all of a sudden, everything that was confusing me, everything that was, was on me became clear in the Father's house. He listened to them, and then he asked them questions. He has a way of, okay, that's where you are. That's, that's what you're mad about. That's what, all right. And then, so what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And he will ask these questions. He frames these questions to challenge our current thinking, our current view. And it's usually about both him and about who he is and about who we are. Like, like for instance, he says to the disciples, who do, you, who do you guys say that I am? Everybody else is saying, you're this, you're that, you're that. Who do you guys say that I am? And Jesus, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and, and Jesus says, flesh and blood didn't show this to you. That, that's right, Peter. I am the Christ. And, and then he, for the very first time, corrects them on what their idea of what the Christ is going to do. He says, the Christ is actually going to suffer and die, not rule and reign right now, like you guys think. And, and so he starts adjusting. He asks a question, that's right. Now, now here's the adjustment in your thinking. And, and at the end of his ministry, he's, it's the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they're trying to mess him up. And, and, and they're asking him these questions, and Jesus has always got the answer that silences them. And then he says, hey, I've got a question for you guys. This is the teachers of Israel. Here's the question. How can Christ, the Christ be David's son when David calls him Lord. And he quotes Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Christ can't just be David's son because he's David's Lord. It's, it's, it's who he is. This is the, some, the, really, this is almost the very last thing he said in Revelation chapter 22 about himself. He says, I am the root and the offspring of David. I am both David's source. I'm David's creator. I am God. 
And I'm David's offspring. I'm a descendant of David. I am man. I'm fully God and I'm fully man. This is who Jesus is. God wants our hearts to line up with who he is, fully God, fully man. But he also has lots of questions about who we are. And he, and, he, and, he, and he corrects us. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, oh, good teacher, tell me what I must do to inherit eternal life. And, and, and Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. He has no idea he's talking to God, but he's got a, he's got a theology about human beings. And here's the theology. There are good people in the world and there are bad people in the world. And Jesus and me are both good. We're both in the good category. Jesus says, okay, you already have it wrong. <laughs> why, why are you calling us good? Only, only God is good. A lawyer comes to him, and in those days, the lawyer was the, were the, the, the teachers of the law. The, they, they were the ones that decided what the law really said. And, and once again, the, the lawyer comes to him and says, um, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, how do you read the law? And he, he says, uh, well, to here's what you need to do. You need to, this is the lawyer saying this, you need to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is like, boom, right answer. Do that and you'll live. But then he starts getting a little squeamish, a little uncomfortable. And, he, and, and the Bible says this, wanting to justify himself, he said, but who is my neighbor? And then Jesus gives this story about what it means to love your neighbor. And it's about this guy that has compassion for his sworn enemies. That's your neighbor. That's what this looks like. And all of a sudden, when we don't get to decide who our neighbor is, I mean, he's got, you know, I love my neighbor and I define my neighbor as my wife and my two kids and, you know, the, the person next door. I, I, you know, I love them. Well, you, we don't get to decide what loving your neighbor is. God says, no, let's look at your love for your enemies. Mm. And all of a sudden, those that thought they were righteous become very unrighteous. So Nate, our uh, worship pastor, went, had a little mini sabbatical a couple weeks ago. And while he was on his sabbatical, he read this book called An Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by a guy named Pete Scazzaro. And he comes back and he said, he said there are five things, the five truths about emotional health. And he said, I'm just going to give you these five things because they, they've affected me so much. And you guys don't even have to read the book. I'm going to give them to you today. So here are the five things, five truths. Number one, Life is hard. <laughs> Number two, I'm not that important. Number three, I'm not in control. Number four, it's not about me. And number five, my favorite, I'm going to die. 
Why, why do they, why, why, do, why are those the five truths that lead to emotionally healthy spirituality? Well, I'll just, I'll review them real quick. Number one, life is hard. If you have it in your mind that because you're a Christian, you are entitled to a comfortable life where everything goes well, you're going to be horribly disappointed in your spirituality. Because the, tr- the truth is, is we're in a test right now. And we're going to have all kinds. You will have troubles in this world. That's Jesus' promise to disciples. Nobody puts that one on the refrigerator. I promise you, you're going to have troubles in the world. Um, life is hard. It is a test. The second three, I'm not that important. I'm not in control. And it's not about me. Are all about when we make ourselves the center of our spirituality. Whenever you make yourself the the middle of this thing and it's about me and how good I'm going to be or how righteous I'm going to be or how religious I'm going to be or how zealous I'm going to be, you're going to end up into a performance Christianity that will burn you out. And you're going to be emotionally a wreck. And then the last one, I'm going to die. James says that our life down here is like one breath compared to eternity. That your existence down here is very brief and your eternity there is forever. And so you have to look at your life, especially at life's problems and how it's so hard and I've got this test. You gotta look at it through, this is a very brief time. I can do this. I can get through this. I can persevere. It's going to be worth it. Any sacrifice I make here, any disillusionment or disappointment that I have to press through, it will be worth it. This life will be seen to just be a breath. Have you ever had God ask you a question? So here's what happened to me when I was in Montevideo. Montevideo, Minnesota, church in southwest Minnesota, this is probably 2002, 2005, right in there. I'm doing a, a series in the book of Hebrews, and I'm, I'm in Hebrews chapter 12, one of my favorite texts, Fix Your Eyes on Jesus. He's the author and the finisher of your faith, and I am, it's Sunday morning, it's early Sunday morning, the lights are off, I'm pacing in my office, the, the message is all ready, I'm so excited. It's all about the altar call right now, and right at the end of the message, I'm sharing this story about this dad with his kindergarten boy, and, and it's, it's the school race, and the dad says, son, here's how we're going to win this race. His son's really fast, but he's very easily distracted, and he says to his son, here's how we're going to win the race. When they say go... You just run to me. I'm going to stand at the finish line and you just, I want you to just run into my arms. Don't look at everybody else that's running and don't look at yourself. When they say go, you run right into the father's arms. And so I'm going to say, what's at your finished line? What, what are you running towards? Is it, is it money? Is it success in people's eyes? Is it, is it pleasure? Is it, what, what are you running towards? And what's at your finish line is my, is my line. And all of a sudden, I'm walking back and forth, and I get rudely interrupted with a question. Just as clear as can be in my mind, what's at your finish line? God, I'm a pastor. 
what do you mean? What's at my finish line? Of course, Jesus. Of course, when God asks, you know it. You've got something's wrong. If he's going to ask, something ain't right. So I have to say, what's at my finish line? And the answer comes back immediately. Influence for Jesus. I am not running at Jesus himself. I'm not fixing my eyes on Jesus. I'm running at something that looks like it, but it's not it. And that is, I want to make a difference. I, I want to fulfill a destiny. I want to I change the world. And immediately when I get that sentence, influence for Jesus, what I'm running at, I immediately know the two costs that I'm paying because that's what I'm running at. I'm running at the wrong thing. I think I'm running at Jesus, but it's actually influence for Jesus, and I'm paying two prices because of it. Number one, I've lost my delight in God. Why? Because if you can only delight when you're having a big enough influence, then delight is always postponed, and then you have to decide how much influence is enough. Is it 100 people? Is it 1,000 people? I mean, do you have to influence a billion people? When do you get to enjoy God? And the second price I was paying was I lost my delight in people. Because if you're living to influence, then you've got an agenda for everybody. If they're unsaved, you need to move them towards Jesus. If, if, if they're a, a Christian, you need to make them a stronger Christian. And if they're, if they're really strong Christian, you need to get them into ministry and get them in the... And there's always... You can never really just enjoy people for who they are. And so these are the two costs. And then I get a second sentence. I'm calling you to have the influence of a bride, not of a PR man. And then I'm like, it, it was such a great description of where I was. I was God's public relations man. Vote God. God is awesome. God is amazing. Putting the posters up, answering the questions, running the, the interference for God because I'm God's representative and he's amazing and we, he wants your vote. He needs your vote. And... It's it just so icky. The influence of a bride is, I want you to be so close to me that you carry my fragrance. And the people look at you and like, what's with you? Oh, I'm in love. I'm in love. My heart has been captured. And it, you, you see the draw? You see the draw of the bride in love. All right, point three. There's a place for you in the Father's house. So it's interesting that Jesus' first words are, I must be in my Father's house. Now we go to some of his very last words. He's at the Last Supper, and this is what he says. John 14, 1 through 3. Do not let your heart be troubled, because in God, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If there were not so, I would have told you, because I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I am coming again and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you also will be. Oftentimes, after a betrothal, the, 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 the groom, the bridegroom-to-be, the prospective bridegroom would go back to the father's house and build. They would usually just build right onto the father's house. 
and this is, this is going to be our house. It's built on, it's part of the Father's house. And, and so Jesus is describing heaven, and he's like, there's a place for you. There are many, many rooms the Father is building, and, he, and I'm going there to prepare a place. I'm dying and rising from the dead for this purpose. I'm making a place for you to be with God, to be in the Father's house for all eternity. Don't let your hearts be troubled. There is more. If there was not more, I would have told you. I only tell you the truth. There's more. I've been there. It's awesome. Get ready. I'm preparing a place for you. I'm going to bring you back so that we're together forever. And, but Thomas is disturbed. Thomas is troubled. He's like, uh, that's amazing. God. How do we know that we're going to go there? And Jesus says these words, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. There's only one way into the Father's house. Because of the sinfulness of man, because we've all fallen far short, even our, our, our righteous deeds, the Bible says, are filthy in God's sight. Because of that, Jesus had to become man. He had, to, he had to become human because it was human beings that deserved death. And to, to take our punishment, he had to become one of us. But he had to be God too because he had to be perfect. He had to, he had to offer the perfect sacrifice. Jesus died for my sins, for your sins, to reconcile us back to the Father. He wants you and me back. So eternal life, the way to eternal life is a relationship. Jesus says this in John 17, three, this is eternal life that they may know you, know there is experientially know to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. This is what eternal life is. So I'll tell you how it works. If you have a relationship with Jesus, when you die, you will go to heaven. Here's how it also works. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I will guarantee you, when you die, you will not go to heaven. You're not gonna make it on your righteousness. You're not gonna make it on your form of religion that you made up. You, you, we all have to humble ourselves and take the way the Father has made into his house. Nothing could be truer that he loves you. He wants you. He died for you. He has expressed his love. The Bible says that he stands at the door and knocks. And if anyone opens that door, he will come in. It says, to as many as received him, to them he gives the power to become the children of God. Not born of man, not born of the will of man, but born of God. Jesus comes in his resurrected form right now. This is what he's doing to the human race. He's knocking. So we're in the Father's house today. Whenever two or three are gathered in his name, he comes among us. He's, he's here right now. And it's very possible while I was speaking, he was speaking to you. Are you in? Are you in the Father's house? Does Jesus live in you? Do you know that you're forgiven of your sins? Do you know that if you died, you would go to heaven? We have it on our sign. Come as you are. There's nothing more wonderful about than this. You don't have to do anything for God to love you. He already loves you. He can't love you anymore and he loves you right now. 
And you don't have to perform or pretend. You just come just as you are. Come with all your brokenness, your complaint, your confusion. You come, you come just as, as you are. But the, the reverse side of that is this. If you're going to ask him in, he has to come as he is. And he is both Savior and Lord. And oftentimes this doesn't work for Americans. Americans want, they genuinely want to be forgiven and they want to go to heaven when they die. But they don't want anybody telling them what to do. <laughs> and unfortunately, he comes in as he is. And I don't want you to have a disappointing Christianity. That I thought it was this. Well, it's, no, it's both and. What, what does that mean? It just means this. He'll start changing you from the inside out. He'll start asking you questions. He'll start challenging your worldview. And, 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 and he, he will start aligning you with heaven. And you need to know that up front. He will, he will come as you are, but you won't stay as you are. <laughs> you, you, will, you will be changed in the presence of God. And so that's just a fair warning up front.